Lord Jesus, would you just come and have your way among your people? Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that sharing time where we just hear praises of how you're moving. And Lord, there's prayer requests as well, ways that we, we need for you to move. Um, but you are a good father and you can be trusted. You already are moving on our behalf. Uh, may we partner with you. God, even this morning as, as you come and, and I know it's your desire to speak to us through your word, may we have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to understand, I pray. So God, may I decrease this morning and may you increase. Speak to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been working through uh, the book of Mark and we find ourselves at the last day of Jesus' earthly ministry leading up to the cross. It's actually day of the cross, the way that the, the Jewish day would work as it started at 6 p.m., uh, and that's where their day started. It didn't start in the morning. It started the evening before. Uh, and so this actually is Good Friday that Jesus is currently walking through in Mark 14. And a little recap of kind of where we are, kind of where we've been. Uh, if you remember, it was uh, the day that they would celebrate the Passover. And so Jesus got all of his disciples together and they were expecting this Passover meal, which the Passover is the same meal done in the same way every single year. They eat the same foods because it it's very representative and it tells the story of when God passed over the Israelites uh, when he was cursing Egypt to set them free. And so the disciples, they're getting ready for this Passover meal with Jesus. This would have been their third one at least. They, they probably love how he tells the story. Again, think about it. It's almost like he was really there. It's like he brings it alive. And so they're expecting this Passover story, but Jesus instead tells them a different story. All of these symbolic foods, he puts a, a new symbolism on them. And so he tells them, he holds up the bread, and they, they have this whole speech they're expecting. And he says, this bread is actually my body, which is broken for you. And they're going, okay, never heard that one before. Where is he going? And then he, he holds up the cup. And they had these very specific prayers that they would pray over this cup of wine. And he would say, this cup is my blood, which is shed for many, it's the blood of the new covenant, the new promises that God is making. And we see his disciples starting to scratch their head like, man, I, I like this, but I kind of don't know what to do with this. And as usual, the disciples are kind of confused. And at the meal, he also says, one of you even sitting here is going to betray me. And they all just start, no, ne I would never, certainly not me. And they just go around the table, not I, not I, not I. Judas, of course, has already set a plan in motion and he gets up and he leaves the meal early and all the disciples just assume, oh, he's going to take care of some kind of business. They don't really think anything of it. Jesus continues to serve them and he says, come on, we're, we're, we're taking the show on the road, follow me. And so they get up and they start following after Jesus and as they're walking along, it's a familiar path they've walked before. Jesus drops another bomb on them and he says, every single one of you is gonna abandon me. And they're like, What? I would never leave you. Are you kidding me? It, it, Peter, the loudmouth of the group, with, with the best of intentions, he actually stands and goes, I would go with you to death. Nothing could ever separate us. And as we looked at a couple weeks ago, Jesus tells him, actually, Peter, before the rooster crows two times this morning, you're going to deny that you've ever even met me. And Peter can't believe it. And he, he's so offended that Jesus would even say that. And he starts to defend himself even more. Never, Lord, never would I leave you. 
and Jesus continues to walk with them until they come to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place that they had come many times before. And Jesus takes the three, Peter, James, and John, with him deep into the garden, and he begins to pray. This is one of the most intimate settings that we've seen Jesus in, where, where he cries out to the Father, if there's any other way for us to go forward. I, I know that the cross is coming, essentially. If there's another way, can we do that? Jesus is looking at what's coming and he's going, I don't want to do this. But then he prays the most beautiful prayer. What is the prayer that Jesus prays in the garden? You can say it out loud. You don't even got to whisper it. Not my will, but yours be done. Your will, Lord, not my own. Jesus, he sets down his own desires and he says, Lord, wherever you're leading, that's where I will go. And we know where this is going to lead him, but, but this is something where Jesus has to spend hours praying this. In fact, he goes and he prays for an hour and he comes back and his disciples have all fallen asleep and he goes, guys, wake up. You need to be praying so that you don't fall into temptation. And he goes back and he prays the same thing again for an hour. He comes back and they've fallen asleep again. Peter, James, John, wake up. You need to be praying Jesus knew a time of testing is coming and you're not ready for it. You need to be praying. And he goes away a third time, prays the same thing. Lord, let, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And here we find him in Mark chapter 14, verse 43. He comes back the third time and he finds his disciples sleeping. And then it says, while he was still speaking to them, Judas, one of the 12, suddenly arrived with him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, he went right up to him and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Then they took hold of him and arrested him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as though I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you, teaching in the temple complex, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man, having a linen cloth wrapped around his naked body, was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. So let's start to break this down. If you remember all the way back at the beginning of Mark, we said as we work through this, one of the most important tools we can have is to actually be able to kind of put yourself in the story. What would it be like to be there? What would it have been like if you were a fly on a tree? I guess there's no walls there in the garden. What would it have been like to be one of Jesus' disciples? To, to see him being arrested and the confusion... Let's walk through it and try to put yourself there. While he's speaking with, this, with the disciples still, Judas, one of the 12, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him. Take him away under guard. So when he came, he went right up to him and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they took hold of him and arrested him. Why would you bring a mob with clubs and with swords and torches? It says, because they assume that Jesus is going to do what most of us would do, put up a fight. 
Maybe turn tail and get out of there. The jig is up. Let's go, boys, and run away. What they came expecting Jesus to do is not what they found. Jesus, who knew all things, he had been telling the disciples for months now, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to raise again in three days. And they just keep missing it, keep missing it, keep missing it. But Jesus obviously knew. He had just spent time praying and preparing himself. What they expected was a fight. What they got was a man willing to accept the will of the Lord. But there's some some other pieces to the story as we start to look at some of the other gospel tellings of this. Mark, which which we've been working through, is actually Peter's story. Peter was telling it. Mark basically wrote it down and put it together for him. But we have the book of John, who was an eyewitness there. We have the book of Matthew, who was an eyewitness there. We have the book of Luke, who wasn't there, but who interviewed everybody he could find. He got all kinds of eyewitnesses' accounts and put them together. And and there's some things that bring to light in some of the other Gospels, like in John, for instance, telling the, the same part of the story. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they said. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When he told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then Jesus asked them again, who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they said. I told you, I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. Think about this story again. Put yourself there. There is this mob that has come armed to the teeth to take down this Jesus guy. They have one of his own disciples who's told him, I'll mark him for you. You can't miss him. I'm going to go kiss him and say, hey, rabbi, that's the guy. So Judas does his deed, and Jesus steps up and goes, why are you here? Who are you looking for? They say, Jesus, when he says, I am he, what happens? They all fall down. Can you imagine that? Yeah, let's get him. He says three words, and your whole team is down. But imagine the audacity, though, to get back up and go, Weird, right, guys? Anyway, let's go get him. Jesus kind of taunts him a little bit. I, I'm sorry, why did you say you were here again? For Jesus Nazarene, I told you, I'm him. What are you guys waiting for? Jesus was this, this picture of meekness. So, uh, the, we hear in uh, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 that the meek shall inherit the kingdom of God. And we go, that just means weak, right? That means like puppy dogs, right? The word meek actually means power under control. Jesus at no point in time is out of control here. Jesus has the power to go, no, you're not. And he even kind of flexes a little bit at them. I'm he. They hit the ground. But seriously, I'm he. Let the disciples go. I'm the one you came for. Come on. Does he have to go with them? Does he? Were they going to overpower him? He spoke three words. They hit the floor. But not my will, but yours be done. And so he says, come and get me. Just let the disciples go. Back to Mark. Then they took hold of him and arrested him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his ear. In Matthew's account, We go then, then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by a sword. 
Or do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will provide me at once with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus goes, oh, we know it's Peter. John tells us in his, then Peter drew a sword and none of us are surprised because we've been watching Peter's life and you go, of course it was Peter, pulled out a sword because again, what Peter has just told him, I'm never gonna leave you, even if it costs me my life. Never, Lord, never. And he went, now's my chance. Pulls out his sword, cuts off the, the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus says, what are you doing, Peter? Have you ever seen me pull a sword on somebody? Have you ever even seen me defend myself to them? Put your sword away, Peter. But then what he tells him, don't you think I can call on my father and he'll provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Do you know how much 12 legions is? 60,000. It's about 60,000 people. Incredible math. I had to Google it. Peter, what are you doing? I could call on my father with a word. 60,000 angels would come down. But that's not why we're here, Peter. That's not why I have come. Sometimes we get into our heads as, as we think about uh, the story of Jesus, we, and, and not wrongfully, we begin to pity Jesus. They came and they took him and the things that they did to him, but we look at it as if like, oh my goodness, and he didn't have a choice and he just had to endure it. Oh, every single step, every single hit that he took, every crack of the whip was a choice that Jesus made. It's not like once they put the shackles on him, the jig is up, I'm done for now. And he just had to be like, at any point in time, he could have said, no, I'm not doing this anymore. At any point in time, he could have called for the father to send down these angels. At any point of time, he could have spoke, I am he, and they all would have fallen down. But every step of the way, Jesus, who had the power to stop it all, all along the way, he said, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. Peter, put the sword away. This is the Lord's will, not mine, but yours be done. Jesus would say uh, earlier, actually, in the book of John, he tells them, this is why my father loves me, because I am laying down my life so that I can take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and the right to take it up again. I have received this command from the father. Jesus says, look, don't get it twisted here. No one's taking my life. I'm not a victim. I am a willing sacrifice every single step of the way. He could have stopped it, but he chose not to. In fact, he even takes it a step further uh, in Luke's gospel. When those around him saw what was going on or what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them, Peter, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. Not only, hey, we're not putting up a fight. Not only I'm gonna willingly go with these men. I'm also going to bless them. I'm gonna heal the one that you cut. Did he deserve to have his ear cut off? He really did. They're arresting God. Like, if that's not an offense punishable by one ear gone, I don't know what is. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Whether this man knows it or not, God is using him to accomplish his will, and he actually blesses and heals the man that is arresting him. 
that is taking him to his crooked trial where he will be condemned to death. I don't really have much of a lesson there other than, wow. No, I've never cut off anyone's ear and had to heal it again. I've never had people come and arrest me where I've had to. So it's not like, well, here's the application, guys. It's one of those things you read, you just go, are you kidding me, Jesus? Like that you would even love that guy who was actively killing you and you chose to heal him. But Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as though I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple complex and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. You're being cowards. You could have done this any day you wanted. You have never seen me with a sword. I'm a public figure teaching in a public place, but you chose to come at night and you chose to bring a mob armed to the teeth. This is cowardice but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. A certain young man having a linen cloth wrapped around his naked body was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. They were in such a hurry to abandon Jesus. We looked at this a couple weeks ago because I think they thought, okay, this is where we fight. And when Jesus tells them, put your sword away, there's that we don't know what's happening right now. We're completely confused. We don't know what we're supposed to do. Fear kicks in and they all run away, even to the point of one of them completely naked. I will do anything to get away from what's happening right here. And they turn tail and run. The men who probably three hours before were telling him, Jesus, we would die with you. We would never abandon you. All of a sudden they don't understand what's happening. They're gone. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes convened. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the temple police warming himself by the fire. We know where that leads. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could find none. For many were giving false testimonies against him, but the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and were giving false testimony against him stating, we heard him say, I will demolish this sanctuary made by human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by human hands. Yet their testimony did not agree, even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them at all and questioned Jesus, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer anything. Again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, Jesus said. And all of you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him and to beat him saying, prophesy. The temple police also took him and slapped him. Let's begin again to kind of break this down. They led Jesus away to the high priests and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes convened. So, so they take Jesus from the garden by force straight into this kind of mock courtroom that's been set up. All of the powerful people in Israel are there. But understanding, it's illegal, even back in their day, to have a trial in the middle of the night. Why is it illegal to have a trial in the middle of the night? 
because it's sketchy. If nothing else, that should be written down somewhere. This is sketchy, y'all. Why is it illegal? It should be. Most of us would agree. What? It is way too easy to handpick who's there and who isn't there in the middle of the night. All of the people that maybe could have come to Jesus' defense, they were conspicuously absent. They have this court in the middle of the night, which by their own law is illegal. And most think it's so they can handpick who is there. If there's any in, in the leadership, that Joseph of Arimathea guy, that Nicodemus guy, let's do it while they're sleeping and let's not tell them. Let's handpick who is there so we can railroad this thing. And so they bring him uh, in this, this kangaroo court in the middle of the night. And the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could find none. For many were giving false testimony against him, but the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and were giving false testimony against him, stating, we heard him say, I will demolish the sanctuary made by human hands, and in three days I'll build another not made by human hands. Yet their testimony did not agree even on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent, and he did not answer anything. Think of how hard it would have been if you're Jesus, to stand there listening to people twist your words and accuse you of what, what would have been horrible things then. Did Jesus say, I'm going to destroy the temple and build it again in three days? Did he? Yes. No. He said the temple's going to be destroyed, but I'm going to build a new one in three days. It, it's a subtle twist, but it makes a pretty big difference, Right? And so as they begin to twist his words, think of how angry you would be if you were there. If right now we called you up here on some mock trial and just started lying about you. When I heard them say this and I heard them say that, it would be infuriating. Yet Jesus remains completely silent. Here's something that Jesus understood how to do better than certainly any of us. He knew how to allow God to be his defense. I don't need to defend myself. My father does a real good job of it. He, he had just told his disciples uh, a few days before this, look, there's going to come a day when you're going to be arrested and taken into courts. You're going to be falsely accused. And he told them, on that day, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you what to say. The Holy Spirit will also tell you when to say nothing. Trust him. Jesus knew how to allow God to be his defender. You can slander me all you want. You can accuse me all you want. I know where I stand with my God, and I don't even need to answer these accusations. Jesus would not be crucified for getting caught in somebody else's lie. I think there was a part of him that said, I'm not going to let you twist this story to where it looks like I got crucified because I had some plot to tear down the temple, I'm not going to let you write that story. And so he just remained quiet. Why did Jesus, in the end, get condemned to death? But he kept silent and did not answer anything. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. 
And all of you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. What was Jesus condemned for? It's right there. What was he condemned for? (laughs) It feels like nothing. They said it was blasphemy. What was he condemned for? He spoke the truth for declaring who he truly was. This is the offense that got our Savior killed. Was it the the plot against the temple and he said this and he lied about that? Was it any of that stuff? No. Jesus, knowing what would happen, the time he chose to speak, knowing it would lead to his condemnation was, I am the Messiah. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds. This was the offense that he was condemned for. I want to shift the spotlight a little bit off of Jesus onto the religious leaders at the time. Part of this, again, putting yourself in the shoes of people in the story. I think there's a lot that we can learn from trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the religious leaders. Because I think the religious leaders had fallen into a series of spiritual traps along the journey. I don't think that any of them set out to wrongly accuse the Messiah and to crucify him. I don't think any of them went, I hate God so much, let's foil all of his plans. I don't think, certainly this is where any of them started. I think along their journey, they fell into a series of spiritual traps that led them to where they would look the Messiah in the eye and yell, crucify him. To beat him, to spit on him. It's not where they set out. They weren't sitting there as Jewish boys going, I hope one day I get to kill the Messiah. Their path was changed along the way. They fell into a series of spiritual traps. What were some of the traps that the religious leaders fell into along the way to lead them to where they are in the story? We've seen them kind of all throughout Mark. They're figures that keep coming back, and we, we get to see some of their character and kind of what's going on behind the scenes. What were some of the traps that they've fallen into along the way? Love of money, greed, prestige, the, the desire to be known, to be famous, to be popular. What else? Yeah, so uh, not making their, the, what we now call intimacy with God a priority. Uh, Jesus even accused some of these religious leaders of saying, uh, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You, you've memorized a lot of it, but you haven't caught any of it. And you actually, you've been focused so much on the words sometimes, you never even got to know the author. There was another one over here. Pride. Pride. Look at me. Look who I am. Jesus accuses them at one point. He says, you love to go and pray on the corners of the streets and to make a big ordeal so that everybody looks at you and knows who you are. You love to walk into to this feast and get the seat of honor. You love for people to lift up your name. And Jesus actually accused them that this is going to be your downfall. What other traps did they fall into along the way? Joe? Okay, envy and jealousy. What was behind a lot of what was going on this night in this illegal court setting? 
They hated Jesus because they wanted what he had. People listen to him. People respect him. People follow him like they would never follow us. And there was this envy and this jealousy. What else? Yeah, it's, it's all tied together, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, they fell into the trap of being dishonest with themselves. They didn't look in the mirror and really reckon with, is this who I want to be? Is this who I'm called to be? They were, they were willing to lie to themselves along the way. What else? Anything else? Joe? Okay. Sure. Yeah, Idol- idolatry, that they idolized power over God is, is what she said. Yeah. Right. Right. I think that along the lines of, of what you guys are saying, you can have a chicken and egg conversation of was it their greed and jealousy that led them to kind of deny who God really was and create this kind of idol of God? Or did it start with that and then that left all kinds of room for greed, jealousy, ambition, power? They, ha- they fell into the trap of trying to create God in their own image. They fell into this trap of going, God must think how we think. God must agree with the things that we agree with. He must value what we value. He must act how we would act. If we don't understand it, it can't be God. God is, they, they put God in a box is a term that we use now. He can only do the things that we say he can do. If it doesn't make sense to me, if I don't understand it, then it must not be God. And so they looked at Jesus. They had been waiting for the Messiah. I'm sure as they were uh, condemning him to death, they were still hopeful that, man, but the Messiah is coming. They didn't hate God. When it says that they tore their robes, this was a, a gesture of, I am so offended on God's behalf that their priestly robes that they wore that represented God, they would tear them to go, I'm so offended on God's behalf. I don't think it was all play acting. I think they truly looked at Jesus and went, there is no way this guy is the Messiah because he's not the kind of Messiah I would send. He's not the kind that we've been wanting to come. So there's no way that this is God moving. They ask him uh, in that passage, Jesus keeps silent. And again, the, the high priest questioned him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Was he really asking a question there? No. This was an accusation. Basically what he's saying, we've already decided you can't be the Messiah. It doesn't make sense to us. There is no way that God would use you. There is no way that God would teach the things that you've been teaching. We've already decided it. Is that true? Jesus says, I am, and and again, this offense. Let's condemn him to death. You've heard the blasphemy straight from his own mouth because there's no way that God would ever do this. He couldn't be the Messiah. It's not how I would act if I was the Messiah. I don't understand why God's Messiah would say and do the things that he has done so Jesus can't be the Messiah. I've already closed the door on that because if it doesn't make sense to me, it can't be how God is moving. 
there's a, a saying by an old, I believe, French philosopher, Henry Rousseau, and it goes like this, God created man in his own image, and man being a gentleman returned the favor. What we have all the way through scripture from all the way back in Genesis chapter three, all the way through, is attempts of man to go, let's make God more like us. He's too big, he's too kind of scary, he's too in control and I feel out of control, so let's bring him down a peg or two into something we can handle. Let's try to create a God who does what we would do, who values what we value, who makes it so that we don't actually have to change. Let's make a God that we can be comfortable with. And if there's one thing Jesus did not do, it's let people be comfortable. Because he came and he said, look, I don't care if you understand it. I don't care what you've heard said before. I'm telling you, there's a new way that God is moving. And it's countercultural, and it's going to be confusing, and it's going to be hard. Some were willing. Some wanted to hear from the Lord enough that they went, everything Jesus said, they would go, Lord, is that from you? I don't, under, I don't even know what it means. I don't understand it. But kind of like, like Peter said at one point, he goes, Lord, but where else are we going to go? We don't understand what you're saying most of the time, but where else are we going to go? You're the only one that has the words of life. Even if I don't understand, I'm willing to, to offer it to the Lord and go, hey, is that you speaking? Is this from you? A really famous story uh, in the scriptures back uh, as the, shortly after the Passover, as the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, uh, Moses goes up onto the mountain to hear from the Lord. The Lord has descended on this mountain and there's black clouds and the mountain itself is actually shaking and it's like there's fire coming from heaven. Like all of that's happening in the background. And what do the Israelites decide to do? They make a God. What, what do they make their God look like? Okay, so they, they make this golden calf. They go, that's too much. <laughs> that makes us real uncomfortable. We're out of control with this whole mountain-shaking God. We don't know what to do with that. Let's make our own God and say he's the one that delivered us from Egypt. What did they call their golden calf? Does anybody know? Um, what? Baal? No, not Baal. That's, Baal's a whole other God that they would try to follow later. Do you know what they called their golden calf? Yahweh. They made the golden calf and they said, hey, tomorrow let's celebrate a feast to Yahweh, this calf, who set us free from Egypt. It wasn't some crazy thing where they went, forget Yahweh. Let's go, let's chase after Baal instead. They went, we want Yahweh, but we want a more controlled version. We want one that we're more comfortable with they had just come from Egypt for 400 years where golden calves and idols like that were commonplace. And God's doing this new thing and it was shaking them to their core and they're going, we're so uncomfortable with who God really is. Let's try to bring him down into something that we can control. And so they do this whole golden calf thing. Moses comes down, he's of course furious. And they go, Moses, we don't know. We made a fire and this golden calf just jumped out. We don't know what happened. And it's silliness. But they created this calf not in an attempt to like curse God and go their uh, completely separate way, but to bring God down into something that they could understand and control. Because the thought of God doing things in a way that they, they couldn't understand and, or, or predict terrified them. And so it is a form of idolatry. 
let's make God in our image instead. Let's make God who likes things that we like so we don't have to change. Let's make a God that the Pharisees and religious leaders probably said, hey, God probably loves power just like we love power. And he probably loves money just like we love money. And he probably hates Rome just like we hate Rome. Let's create that God. And you know what? If he's going to send a Messiah, his Messiah is probably going to look like us. And he's probably going to be powerful and wear really nice robes. And, and he's probably going to hate the common people, but kind of like give special treatment to those uh, who are rich and powerful. He's probably going to hate Rome and come and actually try to lead us and throw Rome off. That's a God that makes sense to us. That's a Messiah that makes sense to us. And so they begin to change their perception. That's all they were looking for, and Jesus didn't measure up, so they killed him. How dare this guy say that he is the Messiah? They weren't the only ones to have ever asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? They weren't the only ones to be confused. It was their heart behind it. There's another story in Matthew chapter 11 where John the Baptist, John the Baptist was a faithful brother, yes? He, he was about God's business, yes? He wanted to see God come in glory, like truly, yes? In Matthew chapter 11, when John heard in prison, don't miss that, what the Messiah was doing, he sent a message by his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we be looking for someone else? Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, those with skin diseases are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. If anyone is not offended because of me, he is blessed. John was in a very similar place to where the high priests and, and the religious leaders were of going, this doesn't look like we thought it was going to look. This doesn't sound like we thought it was going to sound. The stuff you're doing is not what we expected. John's looking at his current situation in prison and going, this can't be the way that God set it up, right? Like, look, Jesus, I'm in prison for doing the kind of things that you taught me to do. Are you the Messiah or did I miss it? Is it, should I be waiting for someone else? But was John accusing or was John truly asking a question? He was truly asking, I, I need to know. His heart was to see God lifted up and he's going, this doesn't make sense to me, Jesus. This isn't how I thought it would go. This isn't what any of us expected. And it, listen, it says he kept silent. Or, nope, wrong one. Here we go. When he heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, John in prison heard the stories and went, that doesn't sound like what we thought the Messiah would do. Jesus, you're not matching our expectations. Did we get it wrong? Is there someone else we need to be expecting? And, does, and Jesus drops the hammer on John, right? And says, how dare you, John? Where's your faith, John? Not at all. He says, why don't you go and tell John what you've seen? The kingdom of God is moving forward. People are being healed. The good news is being taught. People are responding to the gospel. Go tell John that and see what he does. And we know that then John's faith is restored and he actually stands strong until the end where he's actually beheaded for taking a stance for what is right. There's a passage in Isaiah that, that comes back to me a lot that, well, I should, that comes back to me that I have to constantly remind myself of a lot because there's a lot of times when I look at a current situation that I'm in, I'll, I'll read something in the scriptures and I'll go, yeah, I don't know about that one, God. That can't be right, can it? 
That seems too extreme. God, this, this is really hard and I'm following you and you don't let people who follow you go through really hard things, do you? He does. And God brings this passage back to me a lot from Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God telling, again, his prophet Isaiah, who, again, if anyone was close to the Lord back then, it would be Isaiah. And God was looking at even him and going, you don't understand what I'm doing. And that's okay. My thoughts are as far, as far above you as the heavens are above the earth. Where do the heavens actually begin? I don't know, but it's out there. You can't even measure it where it begins. And he goes, yeah, it's like that. My thoughts are above your thoughts. My ways are above your ways. Just follow me. What, what many of us do, if we're not careful, what the religious leaders did is they started to put their always and never onto God. God would never do that, would he? Because I wouldn't do that. So it must not be God. God would always respond this way, right? Because that's how I would respond. There are things that God says he will always do and he will never do. What are some of those things? What, what will God always do? What does he tell us in his scripture? Putting you on the spot here. It's Bible quizzing. What will God always do? Joe? Okay. He will never leave us or forsake us. His words. Can we trust that? 100%. What else? Always, never. What does he promise? He will never lie. 100%. He will never tempt us to sin. And he himself will never be tempted to sin. These are all his words. His loving kindness forever. He even says, my mercies are made new every morning. Every. Always. New mercies, new grace waiting to be poured out. Maverick? <laughs> we'll come back to this one later, yeah. Jesus was tempted. There's, there's a difference there, yeah. We'll come back to that one later. Always and never. Joe? Yeah. He can always be trusted. He's never changing. We don't have to worry about, well, yeah, he said it back then, but now he's changed, and that promise, we don't get that anymore. There are always and nevers that he puts on himself. Then there are ones that we try to put on him. God always, there are some that will teach God always blesses monetarily those that follow him. If you really have faith, God will always pour out gold coins on your head. Does he promise that? And guess what happens? A lot of people in that vein of faith end up walking away at some point because they go, he didn't do it. He didn't come through. He can't be trusted. When the truth is, that wasn't his always and never. That was ours that we tried to stuff him into, hoping that maybe he would just keep pouring out gold coins. The trap that they fell into that we need to avoid is this idea of creating God in our own image. We were created in his. We come to him and we can go, God, this is, this is what I think about this. This is maybe even what I've been taught to expect, but is that really from you? Is this really how you're working? I didn't think the Messiah would look anything like this. No one saw this coming, but Lord, is, is he your man? 
Is this really from you? Because if so, I want to be in. Whether it's how I would have written the story or not, whether it's what I would have expected or what I would have done, if this is how you are moving, I'm in. It takes great faith to allow God to actually be God. If you do this, let me tell you what will happen. You will, you will very quickly realize that you are not in control. And that's a terrifying thing for us. None of us like that feeling. He's bigger than me. He, he can see further than me. He can understand things that I can't even begin to grasp. Am I willing to walk with him even when I don't understand? Even when he's moving in a way that I'm going, I, I wouldn't do that, God. I don't like that you do that. Am I willing to trust? Or do I just kind of make some, some golden calf? I'll call it by the name Jesus, but really it looks just like me. This is what led these men that I believe started their journey in a way of wanting to honor God, wanting to use the gifts God had given them, wanting to see God's glory, what led them to the point of condemning Jesus for claiming to be Messiah. Not even investigating. We've already decided, case closed, couldn't be. Let's kill him. They had made God in their image. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I'd love to have a three-step practical, so just go home and do this. But God, this is a hard one. This is one where we need for you to search our souls. I think of Psalm 139, where David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is what we need now, Father, for you to search our hearts. Where are the places that we have kind of twisted it and tried to make you like us? Would you set us free from those, God? Would you, would you convict us? Would you bring those to our attention that we could open our grip on those? That we could truly have the opportunity to be made more like you instead. So God, if there are those areas in our lives where, where we have made an idol and called it by the name of Jesus, would you convict us for our own good? Lord, would we trust you in that? When you put your finger on it, our, our first response is going to be to slap your hand away. God, would you be gracious to us? Would you lead us in this? Help us to see the things that we're not even aware we're doing. That we could truly follow you. That we could allow space for you to be God. Trusting that even when we don't understand, even when it's out of our control, that you are good, you are worth following, and that you have our good in mind. So just be glorified in us in this way, God. Minister to us and through us in this way. May we experience the life-bringing conviction of the Holy Spirit in this. In Jesus' name, amen.